expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Well, you're here. We're glad you're here because we're here too at episode 111 of the Down and Nerdy podcast where I can't help but wonder seeing that number, Nick. What are we going to do when we get into the 600s, if you know what I mean? Well, I mean, we've already talked to Satan himself. We've talked to his brother. We've talked to the creator of Lucifer, the showrunner there. So what the hell? Let's go feet first in the 666. That's a good point. Why not? Let's just embrace it from now on. I'm James with him alongside. (laughs) I'm Nick Battaglia. Man, last week was a lot of fun. Man, anytime you get to talk about Shaft, yeah. it's fun anyway, but when you get to talk to a guy like Dietrich Smith and Just Do You, I mean, why not? <laughs> just Do You. <laughs> I can see on a t-shirt. Just just, just Do You on a t-shirt. That'd I be mean, great. he's going to have merchandise possibilities just oh, all over yeah. the place now. And speaking of merchandise, something that's been selling a lot lately has been tickets, of course, and gear representing Captain America Civil War and help promoting that. And also, here's the thing. In doing with that, what we're going to do now is, of course, if you listen to this on Friday, the movie is already out. Well, we're seeing how it's crossed the $200 million mark overseas and world, you know, stuff like that. So we have a little bit of a wager going on here behind the scenes. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a guesstimate as to how much money... Captain America Civil War will make opening weekend domestically. And James, I'll kick us off since I'm the Marvel guy. Okay, go ahead. Well, when you look at the movie itself, you look at the history of the Avengers movies. And I'm labeling this an Avengers movie despite the title because it has the Avengers in it except for Hulk and Thor. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it has the ensemble cast. You know, it's not just Cap and Bucky. You look at the first Avengers movie, opening weekend made about $207 million opening weekend. But then... Ultron have a $191, $194 million opening weekend. So you kind of, you know, I was debating like maybe 196 maybe 200 something. I don't know. But then I thought about it. I'm like, wait a minute. This movie's going to have rewatchability factor because even if people don't like it, it still has Spider-Man in it. And right. Spider-Man's going to be in the movie from what we've been told uh, from our sources for about a good 30 minutes. Uh, the rewatch has also various other forms of rewatchability factor. It's a Marvel movie, so you know people can go see it more than twice. The critics are loving it right now for people who have seen it. So, like, you know, I was going to go tour in three, but then you see, like, the first Avengers had a tour in seven, and knowing that people are going to go see it, I'm going to go $209 million opening weekend. All right. I think that's fair. I think that... A lot of the reasons you just said are the reason that I would I would pick my number as well. But I'm going to go with the whole, this is the first time we're seeing Spider-Man gather with the Avengers on screen. It's also, I got to throw in the Batman versus Superman factor in there as well. Critics hated it. There was a lot of backlash about it on social media from early screenings as well. But some people also did love it. And despite all that... The movie still made almost $200 million, even though I know first time you're seeing Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman together for the first time on screen, I get that. But Spider-Man's a big name, too, so I'm going to go a little higher. I think I'm going to go $215 million on the opening weekend. And, I, and, like I said, and I'm not going to lie, like with this type of a movie and who's in it and all the buzz it's getting, and people are saying this is probably gonna be like the best Marvel film out there right now. That's why I'm hearing from people. They're saying it's a really, really good film. Of course, we're going to have a review of it next week, but... 
here is the wager, and here's what's at stake. So we've got we've got our our our, our amounts in two hundred nine million for me, two hundred fifteen for James in terms of million for Captain America: Civil War. Domestically, remember that it's not worldwide; it's domestic. Right, and this is gonna this. We don't know what the Thursday numbers are yet because we're right. recording this before Thursday as well, so we don't know any of that stuff. So we're going in totally blind here. Right. So here's the thing: what's at stake is the loser has to review a comic for what we're reading next week from the winner's choice. And please, for the love of Christ, don't let anybody put a Big Bang Theory comic out there in print immediately. <laughs> if there's any, if there's a comic strip in the newspaper, I'm going to find it and make you review it. <laughs> oh, you're an asshole. I'm, re- I'm already, a, I'm a broken man. I'm a broken, I'm a shell of a nerd right now just from having to review Big Bang Theory last year after losing our uh, shirt battle at Taiwan Comic Con last year. So I, I am literally right now Buzz Lightyear, after he fell, his arm popped off, and he was Mrs. Nesbitt. He's freaking out like, I'm not Buzz Lightyear. I am Mrs. Nesbitt. It's like, I am no longer Nick Battaglia. I am just a nerd who is broken to his inner core. So now when you have to review the comic, I'm going to look at you and be like, you're a child's plaything. Oh, Jesus Christ. I really hope that I win this. You can't lose another one, man. I can't. because I can't because it's like, I'm already broken, and it's one of those things where, as I said, I had, I, I, I already, you know, just I don't, I can't lose my dignity on this. Like, I, like you have to lose at something. Like, you just have to. If this makes one cent above two hundred and fifty, I know, right? You're screwed. <laughs> or if, if it makes two hundred and thirteen, you're screwed. If it, if it makes two hundred and nine point one, I am fucked. Which is funny because if it makes a dollar under two hundred million, I'm screwed. So yeah, right. But I mean, it's just I mean, that's things like we you know we had the whole thing of like whoever's closest and, and you know, we can't go over. It, but it's just one of those things of like again, if this gets like two hundred nine point one, I'm like no, it has to be either on the dot or below it. And that's one of the things where I'm like I want I might go see it twice if it's really good. And it's like. Oh, I can't see it twice because I don't want Jay. Hey, you're gonna to beat me by twenty bucks. <laughs> I know, right? And it's, it's like shit, man. But you know, that's gonna do it for our intro. We'll come next, it's what we're reading. We got two new comics this week. Find out what they are next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book illustrator Dietrich Smith, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time we pull our long boxes because it's time for what we're reading. Of course, as always, brought to you by the fine folks. Over at Fantasy Escape, Comics and Cards, and Aragorn Boulevard in Virginia Beach. Go see Bob and all the great things he has for the nerds that you love and the nerds in your life. And don't forget, this Saturday, May 7th, we're going to be doing a live show on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash downnerdy, for free comic book day. And if you don't live in the Virginia Beach area, you can hit us up on Facebook and watch it there. And if you live in the Virginia Beach area, go out and see us at, over at Bob's at Fantasy Escape on Saturday. We're going to be there at noon. So, James... I'm traveling to a galaxy far, far away. I'm staying within the Marvel realm right now. And, you know, a little while back, I did a one-shot for C-3PO and how he got his red arm. Well, a new comic that came out recently was Poe Dameron. And so I'm doing Poe Dameron, number one this week, of course, from Marvel. And of course, it was written by Charles Soule. Art's done by Phil Noto. And I just want to say this. The one thing about this comic is that it predates what happens in the beginning of episode seven. Okay. So this pretty much starts off where Poe Dameron, uh, General Leia, because she's not a princess anymore, she's right, General Leia, right. gives him this mission to go find the the map, 
go find the plans to where Luke Skywalker is and go get, you know, find that man that he finds in the beginning of episode seven. And so it deals with him having to put a team together and everything else and having to go on this mission. Well, here's the problem with this book. Now, it's not a bad book, because, but they made, decided to make this a continuing and ongoing series instead of making it a one-shot, which would have been, I felt better because, you know, you're... You're dealing with something that deals with yeah. something we've already, before something we've already seen in terms of episode seven in that opening scene where he finds the you know the map right and that piece. So it's like why so why you know why couldn't you just wrap this up easier in a nice beautiful one shot? You're, you're making the book finite, right? You you can't you can only go but so far, right? And that's the thing. And so it deals with him putting his team together. But the problem with this book is as well is that they don't deal with they don't give you. Like, you know very little about this team that he puts together, and they're called, you know, Black Squadron. And, again, when I was reading this, I didn't really care for anybody in that in his team. Like, they don't they spend little time building the characters in this in this first issue to where it's like, you don't really care. And I and, and coming off of where I read the C-3PO thing where he was with, had multiple droids with him, but they spent time in that one shot giving them characteristics and making you feel about them. And here, I'm like, in Poe Dameron, I'm like, they don't do that. You know, it's like, it feels like it's just Poe Dameron and these people who don't, you almost don't give a shit about. That's unfortunate because, I mean, as good as the character building as they've done in the other Star Wars comics and in Darth Vader and even in the, the new movie itself, Force Awakens, it's a shame that they couldn't put together at least a small cast of characters for this book. Yeah, and I, I just think that, you know, the fact that it's going to be more like an ongoing thing, again, I don't know how many issues they're going to do of it, but it's, you know, in the back of it, it says to be continued and stuff like that. So it's, you know, it's issue two. And, it's, you know, even when you open up the first page, it says, you know, book one, chapter one. So it's one of those things where you're just like, oh, God, this could have been a beautiful – if this was a one-shot, especially with everything that happens in this, it could have been wrapped up in a much neater and nicer bow. Well, yeah, and even make it a – you want to make it a six-part series, five-part series, something like that? I'm sure that would probably be fine too. Right, and you know, I'm not going to spoil what happens in the end, but it, again, it's just one of those things where – when you have certain titles that predate things that people have already seen or maybe have already read, um, or even for a sense, you know, ones that are based off video games like Batman Arkham Asylum or Arkham City, I should say, or Arkham Knight, there's, uh, there's only so far you can go before, you know, you, you run out of playing field. Right, and, exactly. And, and you have to find, then find yourself cramming stuff in together. And I think that this would have been worked better as a one shot. It's not a bad book, but again, some of the characters are just a little bit uninteresting. I think if you are, Somebody who loved Episode Seven, I think, for somebody who loves Poe Dameron, this might be something that you might want to pick up and give it a few issues to see how far they will go in this. Uh, this is this is a, a pickup for me. So, but before we move on, uh, how was the art? I've always been a big fan of Phil Notos, and I think he's pretty good. So, was the art really good? At least the art's pretty good. The art, not gonna lie, if you've read the original, the regular Star Wars run with Jason Aaron, the art looks very similar to that. Okay, well that's good. That that's on par for me then. Exactly. So, what did you do this week, man? I decided to go the Boom Studios route and do a book called Weavers. And now, Nick, let me ask you: You're Italian. What happens when somebody in the mob gets killed? Um, somebody in the mob gets killed. 
they go after the person that killed the person in the mob? That's one thing, but the other thing is somebody else gets made. Oh, that is true, so yes. So that is part of the story that's being done by Simon Spurrier here, who also created the series. Dylan Burnett is the illustrator, colors by Triona Farrell, and Jim Campbell does the letters. Now, the guy that gets made is a guy named Sid, and that's kind of who we're following in this issue, and you know, just like any other made man, you got to put him through a test to make sure he's worthy kind of thing. And mm-hmm. let's just say Sid's not very great with his powers. That's the other thing you should know about this group called the Weavers is that everybody in this mob is it's a mob with people that have certain abilities. See, I thought I was I thought it was like Weavers. I thought we were sitting around like people who sat around like rocking chairs only like crocheting and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I really thought it was going to be about people making baskets, but it wasn't. So, yeah. I mean, you know, you just kind of move on and hope that the story kind of goes through yeah but let's just say that sid doesn't have such an easy time becoming a new made man and that causes some problems for him and you actually you kind of get to the steps of you know who the who the group is and where the ranks are and sometimes the ranks are based on what kind of powers you have right we'll say that somebody that sid meets later on in the book her power Let's just say it's, it's it's very unique. I don't want to give it away because it's one of those things where you read it and you're either going to laugh or you're going to go, really? That's her power? So, And that's the reason why she's kind of looked down upon. But there's something else that's very important about her as well in this book. So there's not a whole lot I can tell you without spoiling anything. But um, let's just say that Sid gets another chance to prove himself a little bit later on in the book because there's a lot of suspicion that surrounds Sid. And this is basically a group. They're a very tight knit group. Just like any, you know, you picture anything that has to do with a mob. They're very tight knit. They don't really like outsiders. They don't really like people coming in and asking a whole lot of questions. And that's causing a lot of problems for Sid. So you kind of follow that story. I will say that the art, it's okay. Right. The art wasn't great. It wasn't bad either. It's something that you'd kind of expect from an indie book. I know that's kind of a dirty word, but you know, something from not a main publisher necessarily. It's kind of, on par from what you would expect. Uh, the story, I think I like the idea more than the actual execution of the story. So how, but how do you feel about the characters as well? Do you think that, do, do they, do you find the characters interesting at all? Or are they, do you find, do you, mostly it wasn't more important, do you care about them? I go 50-50 on that. I, I think Sid has me just interested enough. Right. Uh, he's kind of, he's not an idiot. He's not a loser or anything like that. He's, unsure of himself i guess is the best way i could put it and then he meets somebody in later on in this issue that could maybe be a partner for him at some point maybe not that's also trying to prove themselves there's also a little hint at something that you see in the middle of the book that may be a problem a little bit later on uh you know don't tip your dip your pen in the company ink kind of thing so i mean (laughs) there's certainly interesting plot points in here right but i just didn't feel like the flow was there right so I will say that this is a pickup for me. I wanted it to be a pull, but it's more of a pickup because I'm not sure how they're going to drive the story forward a little better. It just didn't seem like there was enough. So what would you what would you rate this then? I think I would give it a pickup. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little shaky on it because I was expecting a little bit more. Maybe it was my expectations getting in the way because it's a very cool concept. A mob run by people with abilities and everybody has different abilities and are sort of ranked based on those things. And the reason that the person that dies in the mob is a very important person that is within this mob and they're actually investigating how she got killed in the first place. 
So, uh, I mean, the the story, it's it seems like it should have been more interesting than it actually was, so hopefully it picks up an issue, too. We'll go ahead and make this a pickup. Well, it was both pickups for us this week. Again, I did Poe Dameron, number one, from Marvel, and James, you did Weavers, number one, from Boom Studios. Again, both of them were pickups, so you might want to give them a couple issues before you decide to put them in your poll. But speaking of, well, powers and illusions and certain different things... We're going to dive into the world of Harry Houdini as we're going to be reviewing the first episode, the pilot of Houdini and Doyle from Fox. And that's coming up next here on Down Nerdy. Hi, this is Bob Lee, Fantasy Escape Comics card from Gene Beach, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, two figures you'll recognize throughout history is Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, what happens when you kind of put them together and give it a little bit of a supernatural twist. Well, you kind of get Houdini and Doyle. It's a new pilot on Fox. We decided to check it out this week and give it a review. And I got to tell you, when you see those two names on on a title, Nick, it immediately catches your attention. Well, yeah, you have, of course, the greatest escapist and illusionist Harry Houdini who's ever lived. And, of course, you have one of, if not the best writers in all of fiction. Of course, you know, Doyle, who, of course, wrote and is responsible for creating Sherlock Holmes. But, however, putting them together in this show doesn't really work out. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of a bummer. I mean, it was... Before we get into the meat of it, I would get, I would say it was okay. But, you know, you see that, and again, I want to go with expectations here. I saw it, and I'm like, this has a lot of potential to be good because you're giving it a, a little bit of a different twist on a story of just, you know, two friends that are going out and, you know, putting out their respective fields. So you're, you know, one person's into the supernatural and then you've got Houdini who is kind of the debunker of the group sort of thing. So I thought it would create an interesting dynamic. Right. And I think that the problem was, and it, it, a lot of it I think stems from the writing. When it comes from a writing aspect the problem with, especially with the case that they're that they're on, a lot of stuff gets resolved very quickly and conveniently. They don't let stuff really breathe out. They don't let, uh, and what they do, and with, with that, pretty much, they have Harry Houdini chew up so much scenery and so much overacting uh, on Houdini's part. And Doyle's, and the thing is, is like when you're watching this, you're like, oh, it's Houdini and Doyle. So you think like maybe. Houdini's going to be the one that, you know, everybody's going to fall in love and stand out. No, Doyle is so much more of an interesting character. Yeah, I mean, I found myself gravitating to his story, the tortured soul kind of story, way more than Houdini's. And I've always been a Houdini fan. Anything that's about Houdini, I mean, I'm a fan of magic anyway, but anything that was about Houdini, I always gravitated towards because I always thought he was such a fascinating individual. But I got to be honest, dude, when I look at Michael Weston's portrayal of Houdini I was not a fan at all it was just it just it was a miss for me yeah Michael Weston like he I don't know what direction they gave him but it was just every scene he was on he came off we understand like, Harry Houdini was a little bit brash as well kind of thing but he came off as just a, a douchebag he came off as somebody who he kind of came off as whenever he entered the room he had this like aura about him and he's like, I'm overacting and this is, this gotta be this. And it's just, 
dude, chill, relax, ground yourself. It's like you're at a 12, need, to be, need you to be at about like a 5 right now. Well, and here's the other problem, is that, you remember there was a part in the show where they actually tried to bring him down to Earth, where he was in that room with right. all the pictures, like, oh, who, when the constable says, who are all these people? And he feels like he's responsible for a lot of phonies that are in the world, and he wants to put a stop to them, and that's why he's kind of a debunker. But that didn't ring true for me. It didn't feel like that was a humanizing moment which, for him. Which is sad, because in real life, that's what he did. Right. He sought out to prove all the debunkers wrong. That's why when you hear, like, Stephen Magnum, who plays Arthur Conan Doyle, say, oh, I went to a medium and everything else, and he's like, please, what the hell does she know, you know? And he's, it's one of those things, you know? And it, it, But again, it's the way that they wrote him... And you're like, wow, this guy is very much a very know-it-all. He's he's not relatable at all. Know-it-all he, is perfect. Yeah. Perfect he's, description. He's a know-it-all. He's not relatable by any imagination. And the scenes that he's in, he's just he's just chewing up scenery and he's just overacting pretty it's much. It's like you're a much nicer person. You're a, you're a much worse person than people actually think you are. Right. You know, right. kind of thing. And, he, he puts out this persona that he thinks that, you know – Everybody loves him, but then once you once that camera once the uh, curtain closes, not so much. Right, and you know, I mentioned the constable. Of course, the constable is played by Rebecca Lillard, who, of course, her name is Adelaide Stratton. Now, I will say this, and it has to be said: this is dealing with supernatural, so of course, you're not going to get accurate portrayals of the t- the actual times. This takes place in you know, Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard did not appoint a female police officer until 1919. This takes place in 1901, and there's already a, uh, again, the constable in Rebecca Lillard, Adele Stratton, who is already a police officer. Now, that doesn't really, it's not a big deal Yeah, I don't, I don't look for accuracy. No, but I, mean, like I, I just wanted to say that because that is, you know, I mean, there are those people. Yeah, well, there are those well, people. Yeah, good point. That's a good point. That's fair. So, but I felt that, like, with her... I understand it's 1901. I understand women weren't treated properly back in those days. But the way that the episode ended, I was like, really? You're just going to treat her as somebody who is just going to be belittled the entire fucking time? Like, if there's one thing that Agent Carter did right was, it got that stuff out of the way and it made you, it gave you Carter qualities to where like, okay, we're going to cut down a lot of the whole misogyny and stuff like that at this point. Whereas with this, whenever she's talking to her boss, it's just like, he's like, he's like I'm moving upstairs because obviously you're sleeping with Houdini. It's like, come on, man. Well, like, really? I think it, it was her deer in the headlights look that I think is, is kind of what you're getting at. Anytime anybody of authority walked in the room, she had the deer in the headlights look. Like, uh-oh, it's about to go down kind of thing. But yeah. the thing I kind of thought with her... I mean, I get, I get why they have to do that, but I think that um, Haley Atwell portrayed a much more stronger front and sort of tried to rally against that from the get-go in Agent Carter, and that's why it got broken through quickly. We were talking about this off the air. I think the problem with her is that I don't think she's a bad character. I think they're playing the long game with her. Yeah. I think she's the character that four or five episodes down the road is going to be way more important than she is now than that we may even realize she is now. But here's the problem with a show like this. You're not dealing with like superheroes here. You know, you're not dealing with a right. name where, you know, now I'm not saying that Arthur Conan Doyle and, and Harry Houdini aren't names, but follow me on this. You're not dealing with something where, you know, you're getting episode four or five. 
I can't tell you that this show is going to get to episode four or five. Even if I thought it was a great show, I couldn't tell you that. Right, and I think that, and this is another aspect that you know plays off. We kind of mentioned a little bit in the beginning of the show with the intro. This is coming out after Lucifer just wrapped up. Lucifer was a procedural, and what they did with the procedural was they made it refreshing. They made the lines work. Everything just worked in terms of the writing. With this, they make it a procedural, but a supernatural procedural in a sense. And it just doesn't work. It just doesn't right. work. And and the, th- and the case that they're on, we're not going to spoil anything, but that the case that they're on, when the killer is revealed and when it's revealed of what really happens, what you're really seeing in the show, I couldn't care less. <laughs> well, I mean, I at the anytime I watch something, I care who it is that that is the person that was responsible. But the thing is, is that they laid no foundation for it whatsoever. No. It was just so random when it's it popped just, up. It's just somebody's killing these nuns, and when you find out who it is, it's just like, oh, okay, right, exactly. I, and then they give you the story after the fact, which I hate. I can relate this show to one thing, and you don't watch a show, so you you can't really do the same. So this is why I picked up on it. Sleepy Hollow. This right. show is very similar to Sleepy Hollow. But the difference is, is that sleep... And again, it was dealing with the supernatural and investigation, and then one was a cop, and then, of course, you had Ichabod Crane. The thing that was different about Sleepy Hollow than about Harry, uh, than about Houdini and Doyle is that there were several likable characters in Sleepy Hollow, and the uh, interaction and the chemistry between the two main characters was Excellent. I do not get that chemistry vibe from the Houdini no. and Doyle pair at all. No, you don't. You end up you, you instead of because as you said, these are kind of like people who know each other and they're friends. I guess for I mean, I didn't really get that vibe either. No, I didn't get that vibe at all. Actually, no, you know, but I mean, it, it comes off as like two guys coming together, and it's it's like throwing two random guys in a room and saying, okay, be friends. They don't well, know anything about one another except maybe like their works and that's it. There's an odd couple dynamic there. It's like, okay, we're both famous, but you're famous for this. I'm famous for this. I'm going to rip on you for your thing. I'm going to rip on you for your thing. Maybe we'll be friends later. Scene. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, I think that, but, and, and then here's the thing too is there's a couple of times where this one cop, I can't think of his oh, name. I know exactly who you're talking about. But M- he, mustache. Mustache man, yeah. Uh, it looks like he's from fucking Astoria. But, he, you know, he he shows up and he's like, has this grudge against Doyle or whatever. And just the fact that, like, you know, they're not real police officers in this crime scene or whatever. And he's like, I'm glad Sherlock's dead. It's like, you do know Sherlock's a fake person, right? You do know that Doyle written the fact that he died. Of course, it was written later in the, his later books right. that Sherlock faked his death. But it's like, is that supposed to affect him? Is that supposed to say, like, I'm glad your son's dead? When it's like, yeah, yeah I wrote him to die. You know? I mean, like walking up to, to somebody that didn't like Stan Lee, walking up to him saying, I'm glad you killed Gwen Stacy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what is that supposed to do? Yeah, you know, it's like... You know, it's just – some of the lines just didn't work. Again, it's just I think from a pacing aspect, the problem with the show was, again, it didn't allow certain situations and certain tensions to rise. It didn't allow things to build. You know, for example, there's a scene where it's like, okay, this has happened, but then why did this happen? And immediately within the next 10 seconds to the next scene, it's answered. Right. And I'm just like, come on, man. Let things build. Well, and, and and on the opposite problem, it seems like with other things, they're playing the long game in yeah. this show. I mean, I know to a certain degree you have to do that in any show. But 
they weren't even dropping hints at no. certain things. Now, they're, at the end of the episode, they do drop a hint that might have something to do with, with Houdini later, a little bit later on the show. But with other characters, it's like, okay, I don't know where you where you plan on going with this, and you didn't really give me much to go on in a pilot. And in a pilot, you better give me something. Exactly. With that, we're going to give, let's give our ratings right now, and I'll have you go first. Alrighty, I I gotta be honest. I don't think there's much more we can say about this than has already been said. Um, I think that this show has a glimmer of hope of redeeming itself in a second episode. But the one thing you can't fix is the what I say is the miscasting of Harry Houdini. So I'm gonna give this four disappearing pilot episodes out of ten. Okay, well me. <sighs> I don't think it was Michael Weston. I mean, granted, yes, I said he overacted and everything else. I think that was maybe dealt more with the direction he was going. Because he, sh- he sure as hell looks like Harry Houdini. Oh, he does. I'm not denying that. But yeah. I think I think it was more just from a direction standpoint, from a writing standpoint. The show really, I thought it had some problems. But again, it just didn't capture me in a way that it should have. Especially when you're trying, as you said, you're re- doing a risky thing and playing a long game with a show like this. And, you know, you come off of a procedural that just finished its first season with another procedural, and it's just, it doesn't have the, the, the pizzazz, it doesn't have any really noticeable and really quotable lines, they have people coming back for more. I'm going to give this four and a half glass tanks out of ten. All right, a little bit higher than mine, which I'm actually surprised at. Yeah, I, I didn't hate it. I, I no, thought I, mean, I didn't hate it either, but... It had way more potential than, than we were given. And I, I, I agree. I think writing was was a big part of that. And that's going to do it for our review of Houdini and Doyle. But come next, there's a lot of nerd news come through. And a certain Marvel character is making his way back to Netflix. Find out who it is right here on Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Vanessa Marshall, voice of Gamora on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy and Hera on Star Wars Rebels on Disney XD. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's time we close our children's books and we see what's happening around the interwebs because it's time for what, James? Nerd Nerd News! And we start, of course, saying children's books because, well, Punisher and, as we saw in Season 2 of Daredevil, always quotes... One of his daughters' favorite books, and uh, well, it was announced we're getting a Punisher Netflix series. Yeah, and I gotta tell you, man, it's exciting stuff. Yeah, it really is because remember we were clamoring, we were kind of like, man, there, there's no way that you know the way that Bernthal played them, there's no way that they're not going to do a Punisher series, and they did, and they are and now. Of course. They released the teaser trailer for it, which is pretty cool. But, of course, they haven't picked a date for it yet. Remember, Luke Cage was supposed to come out, I believe, September 30th. So, again, it's where where, where would you put him? You know, because you have this whole thing with Defenders lining up. It's supposed to be Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Defenders. Do you put Punisher after Defenders? Maybe you still got Jessica Jones Season 2. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough because now... Netflix has kind of become a byproduct of their own success now that they're going to get jammed up a little bit because of this. So, I mean, I don't know. You, you obviously have to do Luke Cage next. Um, you're looking at maybe... I, I could see maybe sliding this in uh, after Iron Fist, but I'm not sure that they can do it much sooner than this. But I am glad that they didn't wait. They didn't leave anybody in suspense. They're like, yeah, we're doing this. Because we even said, both of us said right after Daredevil was over, they need to do a Punisher series. I don't care where it goes, but it needs to happen. And we, and you know, you know, we don't know Bernthal's schedule either. 
So that that might be an issue as well. But, I mean, the sooner they could do this, the better. Even if they have to move around some stuff. Let's just make this happen. Well, yeah, and I think it's it's really, really cool because of the way that they did this. And, again, I think that because they saw what, the way that fans were reacting to Bernthal's portrayal of, of the Punisher, and they're like, we got something here. Let's move on it fast. And, again, I want to, you know, echo what you just said. I'm glad they didn't wait, wait this out. I'm glad we didn't get to, like, Luke Cage and saying, guess what? Punisher's coming. They capitalized Netflix and Marvel knew they had something. It's time to capitalize on it. Let's see what Burnthal's schedule is. And I mean, I'm, I'm excited, man. I can't wait to see who they're going to introduce. And of course, remember, this came off pretty much. This is just great timing all around because remember, this came out pretty much this news the little less than a week prior to the course of the new Punisher comic coming out. Right, you know? exactly. Which, I mean, if you want to read my review of that, it's up on downandnerdypodcast.com right now. I actually reviewed that this week. But, I, you know, i got to be honest. The reason I think people are so excited about this is because this is something that we've seen. We know he's good as the Punisher. Who's the one person we haven't seen yet? Iron Fist. So people are obviously going to be more excited for this because it's a known entity. Even though, let's face it, Netflix is... They, they've laid some good groundwork. They've got a lot of credibility right now. And obviously we've seen Luke Cage as well. So we know that he's going to be good as well. But we haven't seen Iron Fist yet. So I would like to see this maybe go before Iron Fist. Or maybe they'll save it for after Iron Fist. Just in case that kind of falls flat. Then they can redeem themselves. It will go after Iron Fist. And here's why. Because they're currently filming Iron Fist right now. So I doubt they're going to film Iron Fist first. Before they have anything in place. And who's going to write Punisher and everything else. I, I can see Punisher taking place after Defenders. Because I, I can't see. The way that the way that they have their, their Netflix Phase 1, I'll call it. Laid out. They already have it laid out. I think the Punisher yeah. thing will be part of Phase 2 on Netflix. You know? Yeah, but I mean. But that then that begs the question. Shouldn't a second season of Jack- Jessica Jones be that as well then? Because can it, you really sneak in a second season of that before the Defenders now? I think, but here's the thing with Jessica Jones season two of her. I think because of the, the route that they're going and because of the, the nature that Jessica Jones covers and how it's really different from stuff we've seen already on Netflix um, in just terms of tone and just direction and everything else, they already established her, so I think that, you know, they have a certain model that they want to follow. I think they say, because, you know, they got to get the Defenders out there. I think that having the Defenders there first before a second season of Jessica Jones, I think will allow them to find out what avenues they want to take Jessica Jones in in season two. So I think that they, they're taking a wait-and-see approach pretty much with it. I think what you could do is you could take the defend, make sure the Defenders go first, and then off of that you can then move on with Punisher because maybe something happens in the Defenders. Maybe Punisher will be at least a small part of that as well now, and something will happen there that will make Punisher lead into an ongoing series. Exactly, and speaking of things leading on to other series and carrying things over to next season, well, one thing that hasn't had a second season yet, of course, is CBS's Supergirl, and we found out there's a reason why, and this is, of course, according to The Wrap, and also, I believe, uh, Variety reported on this as well, uh, they're saying that because of the budget, because it's such an expensive show, that's why CBS hasn't greenlit it yet. And they're saying that they might move it to CW only if they can get, you know, if they if, if they can they can get the cost less. Yeah, much. I mean, it costs three million dollars per episode. That that's a lot. And I mean, think about it. A lot of that might have to do with the actual 
cast on the show as well. It's not just the special effects and stuff, because we've seen what CW can do with The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow. They're not short on effects on that network, but when it's $3 million per episode, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, you probably lose Calista Flockhart, maybe you lose Makad Brooks. I don't think... They usually go the younger route, try to keep costs down. But I don't think that Makad Brooks and even Calista Flockhart are asking for so much money, you know what I'm saying? I don't know, man. I don't I, know. I don't think like like honestly like Calissa Flockhart. What she really has is Ellie McBeal, Makai Brooks. You know, the, the, a lot of people be are that as others. it may. That uh, doesn't they're, mean they're not asking. I for know, <laughs> but I can't imagine that they're making like a shit ton of money for for the show. I think it's all a lot of it. I think is because of the effects, because of the settings that they have to build and everything else like that, and the whole world they have to create. Um, I well, think this the, hurts Martian Manhunter more than anybody, right? And also, you know, this also hurts, you know, the whole things with Krypton, the flashbacks to Krypton and everything else. You know, remember what they said when the pilot came out, it was going to cost, what, like a million or more plus an episode. It was going to be the most mm-hmm. expensive pilot, like, ever, pretty much. And, again, you know, it's, it's, it's really tough. And to bring, to say, you know, hey, if we can get, like, the licensing money down, we might bring the CW. Like, this, and the thing is, too, is, yeah, I remember this is a show where, it didn't have the best ratings. Like even if it was a good show, the ratings I think weren't till to up to CBS's standards. Yeah, they, well, they're basically cut in half. But let's face it. I mean, let's call a spade a spade here. CBS is still the old fogey network. Yeah, they're the gray-haired network still. All with all due respect to CBS, because they do put out some good shows, but they put out shows for an older audience. And I don't think that Supergirl fits an older audience. It fits the younger audience from the CW. And I'm not sure how much the licensing fees could possibly be for this show so i'm not sure how much that has to do with it, it is i mean you want to talk about mccod brooks and calista flockhart not uh, commanding too much money i can't imagine a license for supergirl would be too high just don't use superman anymore <laughs> uh that'd be that'd be tough though and that's the thing is, and that's the thing is that it's tough to, to you say that but they've really acknowledged that he exists you know there's a lot of things that they can't really cut out well it would take them two already... minutes to say i'm my own woman now i don't need clark i don't need uh, i don't yeah but that'd be so unlike her to say that though you know it's not in her nature at all to say something like that but i mean we'll see what happens but again you know and people will highlight you know well, Kaz, the team is you know why did they go to cw but yeah realize that was NBC, and there was right. pretty much it didn't. Constantine didn't really have a home. Supergirl has a home. They just want her to go from a thousand square feet down to about five hundred. That's all, you right? Know? But here's the problem with that: CBS renewed. I mean, not CBS. CW renewed pretty much every show they had for right. this past season. Where does she go? And that's the thing is that also they have until May 18th to make a decision because once May 18th happens, that's two weeks away. Once that date happens, that's when all the networks, like CBS, CW especially, finalize their show schedules for the fall. So what are you going to do? And that, that creates a weird problem. Here's, a, here's an idea, though. Could she go to Hulu, you know? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a possibility. I guess uh, Amazon uh, Prime is also a possibility. But... I mean, what? The, why wouldn't you maybe like shorten it to thirteen episodes? You don't need to do twenty one episodes. Or here's the thing: we were talking about this last night, you and I. Uh, we were hanging out, and uh, you said you mentioned something about how they had the Star Trek thing. You mentioned how it's the old Foggy Network and stuff like that. And you mentioned the Star Trek thing is going to be on their all access streaming thing, right? 
could they take Supergirl, take it off the television, and put it on All Access? I think that just, that would slam the budget. Even worse than moving it to CW. I mean, they'd have to, I mean, regardless of what we think certain cast members are making, they're going to have to go. Because you cannot have too much stuff on a on a web series. I, and who knows what the Star Trek series is going to look like. I know I know people are thinking, hey, it's Star Trek. Why wouldn't they have a lot of special effects? Well, maybe they're not going to. You know, I don't know. It's going to be a different Star Trek series. It's going to be yeah. It's going to be guys in lizard suits like it was back in the back in the like thirty forty years ago. <laughs> you never know, man. You never know. <laughs> but uh, you know, speaking of things that you don't really know about, one thing we don't know about is who is going to direct the Flash movie because Seth Graham Smith has left the Flash movie over creative differences. And the reason why we're talking about this is a because. In a sense, I think it's a good thing that he left because he didn't really work on the no. best of projects. Um, and But the reason why I wanted to bring this up, the story, is because this is now the second director that has left Warner Brothers, a Warner Brothers DC project over Creative Differences. Remember, they had the director for Wonder Woman before Patty Jenkins, and she left. And now you have Seth Graham Smith leaving. So is this a pattern we're going to continue to see or what do you think the problem is and why do you think people are leaving? Before I do that, I will say I agree. I think this is going to be for the best for The Flash. I also think it's going to work out for the best for Wonder Woman. I actually think they ended up getting a better director. But isn't this all too convenient right now? Because now you're seeing people leaving that were part of the, let's say, the Snyder team, okay? Right. You're seeing people that were, when this stuff was initially announced and the first wave of directors started coming out, you know, before Batman vs. Superman came out, then you started to see the cracks start to come when Batman vs. Superman did come out. Now we're losing the Flash director over creative differences. There's the rumors about James Wan, although I don't think those are true about him and Aquaman. I think he'll stick around, but it just seems like it's like Snyder built a team. Mm-hmm. And now because of what happened with Batman vs. Superman, that team's starting to go away because maybe Warner Brothers is going, you know what, maybe not the direction we want to go. No, I'm not... I've wanted to kind of fight the urge to say that, but now the, the, the writing's on the wall. It's all there now. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't just dismiss this anymore. You know, before I could be like, you know what? Just because they did this because of Batman, you know, just doesn't necessarily mean it's because of Batman versus Superman. It's starting to kind of show maybe it is. And maybe we are going to see either get the end of Snyder soon or, we're seeing Warner Brothers saying, hey, you know what? We're going to do it this way. You can do what you want with your stuff. Right. And I mean, you know, like I mentioned, Seth Graham Smith's works before. I mean, this is a guy who doesn't have the best track record. He, you know, he's known for doing the, the giant depth, dark shadows in 2012, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, and the most recent Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, which didn't do too well either in the, in the box office. So, right. And how many of those scream flash to you? Yeah, right. Just show of hands. Just, just <laughs> how many of those scream good? <laughs> right, <know>? exactly. <laughs> not many. Um, not at all, actually. But it, again, we're seeing this exodus of people leaving. I think, I think, from what I'm hearing from from friends who I, I have close in the industry, I think Warner Brothers is looking at Batman versus Superman. And all the the way they're doing it. Remember, we had the reports of like they want to make Justice League more lighter now and everything else. They're looking at it like they're saying, yeah, Zack Snyder, you made us a lot of money, but it wasn't because of you. It was because it was Batman vs. Superman on the screen. So people are going to go see that, despite how bad it was. And I think they're seeing that. And remember, Justice League Part 1 is Snyder's last last film on his contract. Yeah, they're, they're stuck there. There's nothing they can so, do So here's the thing. After Justice League Part 1 happens, 
do you what do you do? They need what they need is they need it. They don't. Here's the thing. And this is why Marvel's Cinematic Universe works because notice they don't have a director. They don't have like John Favreau directing a movie and also heading the entire universe. DC Warner Brothers they have Zack Snyder and they have, they have him pulling massive duties. It's like saying you know if, Mar- if it's like instead of Kevin Feige. They had Joss Whedon direct Avengers and do everything else and, and watch over stuff. You're giving the guy too much responsibility. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's too much. And you're giving need, responsibility to a guy who hasn't really earned that. Yeah, right. and they need a guy or, or a woman to come in who knows the source material, who loves the characters, to oversee stuff and tell Zack Snyder no. They need somebody to be able to tell these you know directors or whoever, these creative teams, no, we want to go this route. And I think they saw what happened with Batman vs. Superman, and they're like, you know what? We gotta do a full 180, you know, turn here. And I think that Wonder Woman will hopefully provide that because it looks pretty good. Right. But again, I was at dinner with a friend the other night, and we were talking about Batman vs. Superman, just the whole DC universe. And I mentioned to him, I said, a lot of people are scared, and a lot of people aren't really happy because if even if Wonder Woman is amazing. It leads into another Zack Snyder project, and how excited are you going to be about that? You know, well, I mean that's true, but I think Zack Snyder at this point is being told those things. But the problem is, is I think he's being told by the wrong people. Right, he's not being told by somebody like a Kevin Feige who's in charge of the entire universe. He's being told by suits at Warner Brothers. Yeah, and that that's different. That's you don't get the same. I don't want to say there's not the same respect level there, but it's like. You know, you're you're in an office, you're not on the set, you don't know what it's like to do this kind of thing. Yeah. So if it came from somebody that's been in that situation, I think that, that they'd be a little bit better off. But here's the problem now. I don't necessarily think they'll do a complete 180, but what I do think is the saving grace of the DC Cinematic Universe is they've already come out and said, everybody's going to be allowed to do their own thing. So unlike... You know, we've always said, you know, if one thing goes wrong with Marvel, the whole the whole ship could sink because they're all connected. Whereas with this, if everybody's allowed to do their own thing to a degree, if the solo the solo movies can succeed outside of the realm of the team up movie, but hopefully either Justice League is somehow a complete 180 for Snyder and he somehow finds a way to make people love that movie or you know, we just have to take our lumps with Justice League and move into Justice League Part Two after that with somebody else. Uh, and that's the thing is, like, you know, we'll, you know, I think here's the thing too is I think a guy like Jeff Johns or why not, um, you know, some 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 big wig or some some well known Jim Lee or somebody look over to the DC universe. That would be amazing. That would be the right direction. I mean, yeah, I would love to see Johns do it, but the problem is I don't want to see the publishing arm suffer without Johns, because I think Johns is a huge part of what needs to happen in the comics as well, and I don't necessarily want to see him lose that. Uh, I think that I worry about Johns being overextended, too. I think he's the guy. Right. But I don't want him to be overextended, and I don't want the comics to suffer because he's not there. So until you find somebody that you feel like can be that guy for the comics, I would leave Johns where he is. Right. And you know, James, when comics tend to suffer or, in a sense, kind of go away for a little bit and not haven't really been heard of what happens. They reboot them. And I know you're a child of the 80s, so I'm going to give you the ball and let you run with this. Something is coming back to comics that you're really excited about. Yep, and it hasn't been in comics since right around 1985. And that is Mask, which, of course, is the animated series and the toys that were... Well, they were first done by Kenner, actually, in 1985, and then Hasbro actually acquired the rights in 1991. 
But here's the deal. We know that they want to make Mask part of the big G.I. Joe cinematic universe. And who has the rights to the G.I. Joe comics? IDW does. So right. now IDW, just like they just did with Micronauts, going to bring the Mask comics back. And, I mean, it's very similar to G.I. Joe. I mean, but they've got, you know, the heavily armed vehicles. You know, everybody's got the mask that gives them a special ability kind of thing. Their their villains are called Venom, which, again, kind of a G.I. Joe connection. So, I gotta tell you, man, I was a big fan of Mask. I had all the Mask figures and stuff like that. I, mm. I loved it. I had the big semi-truck with the missiles and the guns on it and stuff <laughs> like that. I just loved it. So, I love the fact that these are... I still have a couple of my old Mask comics. Do you? I do. I still have them. I was always a fan of the series. So, I'm glad they're going to be bringing it back. I just hope that... They keep the they keep within the theme as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. And I think that you know, it was cool. As you know, you mentioned Mask. We actually found out uh, a little like a week ago or whatever. Like somebody we know actually wrote a couple episodes. Back yeah, in the, the day. animated series. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? So I mean, yeah, definitely we get, know. can't wait to. I haven't really talked to him about it because I don't think he knew that we were a fan of the <laughs> right. show. Right. So now that we know, I'm gonna talk to him about it now. I'll be like, hey, yeah. what's that like? Because I mean, I just loved it, man. It was so it was so creative, mm-hmm. uh, the way they came about it and the masks. I mean, it's kind of like when the Power Rangers, you know, when it was Morphin Time. That's what it was like. Mask is like the '80s Power Rangers. I feel in, in a way, it kind of is, except with more GI Joe mixed right. in. It was a militarized version I'll, I'll of tell, Power Rangers. Well, I'll tell you who's happy right now, though. It's that it's Hasbro because remember we did a yeah. story. Uh, a couple weeks ago about how they had the whole writers, writers room together and everything for the G.I. Joe universe and they're going to bring Mask into it and, you know, Micronauts and everything else. Um, but there's, they, they are looking at this right now and they're just, like, going to print money. Like, they are, like, legit going to print money because, again, people who grew up with Mask are, like, in like your age, in their mid, mid to later 30s and they're capturing on that market and this is a great way to, you know, you have a son you know, it's a great way to pretty much bring in a new version, a new class right. of mask fans, you know? Exactly. And think about this. What is the one thing that fathers around my age want to do? They want to pass on the stuff that they loved in their childhood to their sons and their daughters. What better way to do that than to do this now just like, you know, you're always going to try and do that with, like, Star Wars, with, with DC, with Marvel. Mm-hmm. But there's other there are other things that we loved. Like, Power Rangers would be that for you. G.I. Joe, Transformers, Mask would be that for me. So now I'm going to be given that opportunity to now pass this along to my son. And, you know, not only just for myself, but to carry that tradition on. There, there's a lot of money in nostalgia, and I think that Hasbro's figured that out. What's the one thing you're hoping to see in this new Mask comic series? I just want to see them get the feel of it right. I want to see that. I don't want it to be cheesy at all because I don't feel like the animated series was really cheesy. I just want that. I don't want them to go all hardcore either. I just want it to be. I want it to be a, almost like a lighthearted version where it's not too intense, but it still keeps within the theme of the show. Because I don't think you need the the temptation here is to make this darker or a more adult, don't do that. Keep it exactly the way it is, because it wasn't too kiddish then. Just like I don't think the G.I. Joe cartoon is is kiddish. I think it actually works. I think you get, you can actually enjoy it. So do exactly that with Mask, and you've got a winner. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Nerd News. But guess what? Come next. Four-time Eisner Award winner Gene Ha stops by to promote his new series, May. Of course, from Dark Horse Comics, it's going to be released May 18th. 
And guess what? We're going to talk to him next, right here on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is colorist Tamara Bondola, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, we always tell you that we never want you to buy a bad book. So one thing we want to try and tell you is about books that are going to be coming out. As a matter of fact, on May 18th, we're going to tell you right now a book that you're going to want to add to your poll is May from Dark Horse Comics. We're so happy to not just have the artist, but the writer of the book as well, four-time Eisner Award-winning Gene Ha. Gene, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to be on the show. I mean, it's so great to get to talk to you about May because this thing's been going for a while. It started as a Kickstarter in April of 2015 before actually being picked up by Dark Horse. So talk about the amazing support you got from the fans. And did any of the ideas for the book actually come from the backers themselves? I was working on May for a long time. Well, uh, I've been playing with some of the ideas like for over a decade before I started the book. But the story was just about done when I launched the Kickstarter. So the main book that became the Kickstarter is going to be issues one and two of the Dark Horse series. Uh, were set in stone before I began getting backers. But afterwards, because uh, of some of the rewards, some of those guys will be showing up inside of the book. So uh, there's things like uh, some of the villains will actually be my Kickstarter backers. Um, There's going to be a a city guard captain who's um, a backer from Germany. Um, Let me see. A friend's dog is going to be the butler of a mad scientist. Nice. Nice. Yeah, so yeah, that, it's, they've kind of affected things that way, um, and just uh, just getting their energy and th- enthusiasm just made me very excited to write stories pretty much for them, so yeah. Hey Gina, in what ways do you think that things like Kickstarter have kind of changed the landscape, especially you know somebody who writes and, and does comics for a living? I like that you said uh, things like Kickstarter, because things are expanding out now, there are things like Patreon mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. other things. Um the problem with Kickstarter now is that there have been so many people. Well, you know, it's, it's it was a very wild. It's always been a wild and woolly place for doing comic books, and a lot of these people are not people who have proven dependable. So a lot, you know, people who are regular Kickstarter comics backers often will like say back ten projects, and after four years, they've only gotten half of them. So people are a lot more guarded with their money on Kickstarter now on comics, which is not true of other nerdy things like um say, board games or for mm-hmm. uh, science fiction or fantasy. Programs. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really hard for an unknown to make it on Kickstarter now. Uh, and it's, it's not a bad place, but not as kind of as a crazy high finance place as it was for people who are more established. Um, but, yeah, if you can prove – if you're a newcomer and you can prove online that you can come out with a webcomic on a regular basis once or twice or three times a week and do that for six months or a year – you will build up a fan base, and then these people might back you on Patreon. And I know a few people who've done this, where they've uh, seemed to have quit their day jobs and just are just using their comics to support themselves now, which couldn't have been done, say, four or five, six years ago very easily, except by just mostly by selling T-shirts. But now yeah. it's... You know. oh, yeah, it's, go ahead. it's absolutely amazing the way that things have kind of evolved over time and kind of made it easier to get people's names out there. And even if you've got to kind of pay your dues for a little bit, I mean, we, t- we talked about not too long ago, how tabletop games actually outgross the video game stuff on Kickstarter and the comic stuff as well. It's crazy. Oh yeah. Oh man. Yeah. This, once you get enough people backing uh, one of those board games and the quality of all the little elements just keeps them going up and up and up and in a way, in a way that just, you can't do that on a comic book because it takes too long to produce the comic book. But, you know, just adding five, you know, 10 3D cast figures. Oh, my God. They're so beautiful. I have friends who are huge, huge board gaming folks and their Kickstarter games they get are just amazing. 
And, and Gene, you know, as, as James mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you're someone who have won multiple Eisner Awards. So in what ways do you look to both challenge yourself and continue to grow as both a writer and as, and as an artist? And also, does winning an Eisner, uh, in your, or in your case, multiple, add certain uniqueness or elements to both? Well, in my particular case, uh, the big thing that won me three of the Eisners was working with Alan Moore, which is a huge privilege for anybody in comics. And I'll... I'll just specifically say that all the Eisners I've won have been for the books. I've never won a Best Artist Eisner. Mm -hmm. So people like my art, but that's not... It's the combination of the story and the art that won the award. Mm -hmm. So that was a very, very exciting period of my career. And then that ended because Alan Moore... uh, Well, for one thing, he hates DC, which bought out the company that was publishing my book. So he's not going to work with them anymore. He's not easily going to work with me anymore because he's doing his own weird things and he's looking for new artists to do these very different things like his horror anthology, um, his gigantic uh, novel, which is bigger than any of the Game of Thrones books. So at this point, I am just try- you know I am trying to find new things to challenge myself and just to push myself and trying not to be complacent and leaning on the same old tools all the time. So that's why May looks very, very different than my earlier work. One of the biggest things is uh, around the time where, uh, you know, uh, I guess it was a little over 12 years ago, The Incredibles came out, which was obviously influenced by comic books. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking, wow, that really, really works well. And I think that would really work as a comic book style with that kind of lush backgrounds and uh, use of color and those um, Bass Rankin style, um, you know, Christmas special figures and stuff like that. Uh, so that's part of what that was one of the huge influences on me. Just trying to see if I go for more cartoony style, but with the lush color and three dimensionality, can I try to tell a story that's as powerful as the way The Incredibles hit me? Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, you speak about that. One of the things I loved about this book was the realism. It just felt organic when I was reading it, and it felt like all the characters were like right there with me. So, what was your main focus in driving this story forward in the early going? I'm going to have trouble actually beating, uh, you know, describing it better than what you just did, which is just creating an immersive world where just you feel like you're there, even though it's not totally realistic. Just it's it feels like its own complete thing. Um, there's a nice little thing that um, Tolkien had where he he really hated the phrase um, suspension of disbelief. It really annoyed him. And he said that the what you're trying to do with a piece of fiction is you're not trying to get people to suspend their disbelief. You're trying to build belief in the world you're making. And that's by being consistent with it and not necessarily even being realistic, where um, the logic of a world like Tolkien's is not like the logic of our world. But by making it make sense and being consistent with it and making it interesting, you just get pulled deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Oh, exactly. And, you know, Gene, what I love about May and Abby's relationship in the book is that despite being sisters, there's a real disconnect between them. And what I love about it the most is that what makes it so unique is that it's not one that's been created that we've seen a lot of of hatred or jealousy. But without spoiling anything, what ways will their relationship kind of be nurtured as the series progresses? I'm just going to give this away now. I mean, obviously, I've given away that I'm a huge Tolkien geek. And who would Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, I know what Tolkien means in German and things like that. And, uh, fine. Yeah. Uh, his childhood in South Africa and his fear of spiders he developed there because of the giant African spiders and stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, some of the structure of May will be taken from The Hobbit and from The Lord of the Rings, where it's about a person pulled out of a kind of a comfortable rural setting and then shoved into a world of adventure and having to find, um, to learn, to, you know, to draw out the hero within. 
And part of that also means that May is going to have to learn to be a hero without her sister, who in some ways is a Gandalf figure, but mm-hmm. a Gandalf figure who is not right all of the time. And uh, that's part of what May's going to have to learn is that she's going to have to learn to trust her own um, wisdom, her own creativity, and her own moral instincts, which sometimes will go against her sister. That's going to be very interesting going forward. As a matter of fact, it was kind of very quick and easy to miss if you were going through the first few pages of this book. But there's an antique shop in town that I think is going to play a big role in the story going forward. So can you kind of give our listeners any inside information about what that may be there behind the scenes? Well, let me tell you this. Um We'll go back and forth a little bit between the two worlds. Mm-hmm. And my original plan was actually, when I, before I really set down the plot, was to go back and forth a lot and to constantly contrast the two worlds. So I really fleshed out that town. There's ideas and settings I have in that town, um, which I may not get to use as much as I thought, because once I really began developing where the story, figuring out where the story was going, it's, I'm not going to get to use everything. I'll just say that in the beginning, when uh, when I first created the characters, uh, May was not a modern day girl. It was kind of set in a, a fantasy version of the 20th century huh. inside of Indiana. That's yeah, nice. and it was yeah, it was a bit like uh, the way I thought of it back then was I thought of it like the movie Brazil, you know, somewhere in the 20th century. And she was going to be working for uh, the telephone company, which leased out telephones and leased out uh, personal computer terminals, like the one in Brazil. Oh wow! Wow! And she was going to be a technician for that company. But this all fell by the wayside because I realized the main bigger story I had was mainly set in the other world. And this was just distracting from the main story. I couldn't throw all this in there and then not fully develop it. Like uh, having her be a computer genius uh, in doing, you know, in something that works kind of like a TRS-80 computer from the 1982 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, there is a lot of stuff developed inside that town, but I can't explore it all. Though I guess the thing is, it also depends on how I grow as a writer and also how my readers explain to me what the story is. Because as a new, especially as a new writer, um, it's interesting when I get feedback from the readers on what the story looks like and what, you know, what the interesting bits are. Um, do you guys play a lot of role-playing games, like t- a tabletop role-playing I- I haven't, but when I was in college, I had a bunch of friends. So every Friday night, they played D&D, and I would always watch them, and I was always entertained by it. it was, it's been a while for me. I actually made a couple when I was younger. Oh, wow. Okay. So, okay. yeah, it's been a while, but yes. Okay, so you'll understand the principle of what I'm saying here, which is that um, a lot of the things I've learned from storytelling are from um, my friend Lowell Francis, who uh, wrote a little bit of comic books and does a lot of writing and role-playing games. And at the end of every role-playing game session, whether it's Dungeons & Dragons or whatever, uh, you know, he'll find out what the the players thought was re- when he runs the game as a dungeon master. He'll find out what the players thought was interesting, and then next week he will develop that. And it, sometimes it'll be a minor character he didn't expect, where they'll just say, "Oh, that guy was awesome. We need to get revenge on him. He's he he really earned an ass kicking." <laughs> this will develop. You know, this this will change the focus of the of the story that he's building. If, you know, he may have thought that somebody else was the big, horrible villain of the story or the, you know, the most interesting person to, you know, hiding secrets and stuff like that. And then, like, the players just get obsessed with the tavern keeper. And it's like, what is the tavern keeper hiding? Why won't he let us through that door? And it's just kind of like, well, of course he won't let you through that door. That's where he counts his money. And it's not that much money, but that's where he does it. Oh, you're interested in it? Okay, that door is going to become much more interesting now. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's so much such so important, like in writing as well, and just anything really you know that's creative, like being a dungeon master or whatever, where you have to pick up on those small little details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I I'm just 
really, really, really interested to just talk with more and more with the readers and find out what they think is interesting. So the very fact that you picked out that, uh, you know, the antique shop is now getting my gears whirling around in a way that I that was not happening an hour ago. I'm going to say that that's a good thing then. Yeah. Once I began thinking about it, so yeah. We're of course talking with Gene Howe, of course, is the writer and artist for May, and issue number one will be available from Dark Horse May 18th at your local comic shop and online. So, Gene, you know, you talked about the whole 3D style of art that you use in the book, and what I love, you know, something that really captured my eye as I was reading the first issue is just how you use various forms of just lighting, and then you give different, you know. The art multiple dimensions with it. You also, you know, give some nice shadows as well and some just nice contour with it. So in terms of aesthetics, what do you feel makes this series a visual experience unlike any other comic book readers have had so far? I wanted to create, give the feeling that you're actually entering real spaces, um, cinematic, beautiful spaces where just, I'm not, you know, I'm not, not trying to copy movies in my storytelling or in my character designs, except a little bit of Pixar characters, but yeah, I just wanted to feel like this is a world where you can explore it and uh, just keep on getting deeper into it. And that's a, that's also how I'm trying to write the characters as personalities, too, where I feel like if you read a comic book once and never read it again, you did not get your money's worth. You know, if you're paying three, four or five dollars for a comic book, you should get three, four or five reads out of it at least. And hopefully it'll be, you know, interesting enough so you can loan it out to your friends, too, um, which is something I really miss with the whole bag and board era i grew up inside of oh, mm-hmm. yeah i was just you know trading comics and just seeing what other people are reading um so i want there to be enough in the background in the complexity of the story and the complexity of the characters so that there's a fun read the first time you read it and you can explore little bits and pieces and just you know you typically read a comic book in 15 20 minutes or something right yeah around oh, there. yeah typically yeah yeah and if you go through a second read and do it slowly you will see little details that you did not catch the first time and if you then go back to that issue, you know, after you've read the next two issues, you will see things that mean very, very different things, um, where everything means something a little bit different now that you have the context of what happened, what happened to those characters later. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, when now you being as much of a Tolkien fan as you are, maybe this isn't going to be a fair question in hindsight, but uh, when Abby tells May and Dahlia her story, it's hard, kind of hard to imagine, so... If you had a friend or a relative tell you the same story, would you believe them? No, no, of course not. Um, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> no, no, is just like no. You <laughs> no, of course I would. No, yeah, I mean, if you t- if you told me now that you'd actually been to, uh, I'm gonna. Pr- I don't speak Czech, so I'm not. I don't know the pronunciation. I have a Czech language professor helping with this. But Simmerterran. If you told me you'd been to Simmerterran and that I was drawing it perfectly right when you see issue three, I'd be like, okay, you're. That's, this is amusing, but you're pulling my leg. <laughs> I would not believe it. <laughs> or if you told me, oh, man, you – no, no, that's not how they sell street food inside of, uh, inside of that giant turtle city. Uh, <laughs> now I want you to go with this nice man. He's going to take good care of you. Yeah. Brunerva you know, has much, much nicer street food than you're drawing inside of that book. And like, <sighs> yeah, sure. And uh, I'll just give an, an actual example, which is um, – my dad has passed away, but he told me the story before he died that um, he feuds, you know, he has a very feuding family. And this is absolutely true. They feuded, you know, the brothers and his, he and his dad did not get along at all, his older brothers at least. Mm-hmm. And he told me that um, last time he tried to visit Korea, he, was, um, he needed kind of a walker and he was pretty old at the time. 
Uh, they s- scooped him up and locked him in a house and tried to get him to empty his bank account and literally were twisting his arm and kind of beating him up to try to get him to do it. And I was like, I don't think I believe this story. I think you're getting a little old and paranoid and you're making up things. Because he also had a kind of a weird sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And then after he passed away, I was going through his materials and I found a, a book, a Korean book he brought back from his trip to Korea. And then I opened it up and a note in English fell out where he was describing about how Okay, I'm really losing hope being trapped in this house. I hope I get wow. past Wow! And it's like, oh, God, that story was completely, absolutely true. Was part of you kind of kicking yourself for not believing him at first? or I mean, I, I, my, dad, my dad could uh, tell a tall tale, but he was usually kind of as a prank. And I was right. like, get the joke in this. But, um, it's, and it's kind of hard to believe because people – I know his brothers can be jerks, but – Going that far? That sounds a little crazy. So, but yeah, it was a cry wolf mentality kind of thing. After yeah. so many stories, I get that. Yeah, and just from anybody, it's a little hard to believe. I mean, also his brothers are not like you know professional gangsters or anything like that. They are educated uh, upper middle class folks. So it's kind of like it's kind of hard to imagine this happening inside of like the American equivalent of a golf course suburb or something or subdivision. Right. Wow, that that is an unbelievable wow. story, and you're certainly telling an unbelievable story in May as well. So we got one more question for you before we can let you go, and see if we can draw just a little bit more information out of you before the book comes out on May 18th. What do you think? Since we haven't seen it yet, what is the most unique part about the other world? Oh man, see, I, in a way, I've become so used to that other world. Uh, it's it's a world of wonders where there's just like there are things from before. Before the Czechs and then the Czech Americans and then other Americans colonized the place in the late, in the mid and uh, late 19th century, there were other people who had colonized it before and generations of it, but these, most of these people have disappeared. And wonders of uh, just like I was talking about, like the, you'll see in issue three, a town built on the fossil of a mountain-sized turtle. Things that just are imp- seem would seem physically impossible and sciences that work there that would not work in our world where it's just it would just shatter things but everyone takes it for granted and it's fun going into a place where you're seeing new miracles which you know which no one else can quite understand how miraculous it is um it's you know it's one of those things of just like it's good to kind of you know actually i'm gonna ask you some advice right now or any, any of your listeners um there's a phrase I heard a long time ago. I can't quite f- find out who said it, and I'm going to paraphrase it, which is that the job of art is to make the everyday seem magical and the magical seem everyday. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That does sound Disney-esque, though, doesn't it? It, it kind of does. But it's every well, it's art. True. That's actually true. It's, it's every absolutely art true. true. Well, it's yeah. true because, like, you know, when you read a book, you know, in general, and it's, whether it's a comic or a picture book, whatever, you, that art just needs to grab you. And like I said, with May, it does grab, it did grab us, Gene. Like, it was, it was it's amazing. That's just the way you pull people in and, and the things that you use. And yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's really an important thing, you know, to, just to grab people, you know, and make it, make things seem magical and just, you know, like be able to close the book. And I, I think one of something that's important people can do, Gene, too, especially, you know, writers and, and artists, is just like, you know, put something in a book that, you know, makes the person after they've closed the book go like to their closet and like say, "What if I was to open this? Would this lead to a new world?" You know what I'm saying? Kind of like, you know, like when I was a little kid, and saw this Toy Story. I'm like, okay, I leave my my playroom, are my toys coming alive? Kind of thing, you know? Yeah, and this is true even of non fantasy art too. Of just like 
even if someone does a photojournalism piece about the city you're living in, if it's mm-hmm. really good, it's going to change the way you see your city right now. Or if you watch Star Wars, it's going to change the way you see the struggles you have at work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's all about changing. Art is about changing the way you see the world. Oh, exactly. It's like, you know, I'm going to work every day, but I'm not being choked by my boss midair, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that is one thing. Yeah. But, uh, Gene, before I let you go, man, where can people find you on social media? Uh, oh, just uh, GeneHa.com, and there are links there to everything else. Fantastic. Oh, that is very succinct. That is absolutely succinct. And I'm, I'm sure that people can't wait to read May number one, which is going to be coming out May the 18th at your local shops. And, of course, online, you can always go to DarkHorse.com for that. Or GeneHa.com is another great place to find more information. The great and wonderful Gene Ha, thank you so much for joining us this week to talk about May. Hey, it's been a pleasure talking to you all. You know, James, we've been doing this podcast for about a little over two years now, and I've never taken you for much of an antiques guy. I mean, come on. Yeah, I like these things. I like trinkets and baubles and going into little shops with old guys and mustaches saying, well, hey, guess what? You know, look at look at this thing I've got over here. It's 200 years old. Well, Jane, I'm sorry to let you know, though, that that pop figure just came out recently, and it's not 200 years old. They've just been rolling around in dust. Man, there's yeah. 100 bucks I'll never see again. Jesus Christ, spent 100 bucks on a pop? I don't want to talk about it. God, Antiques Roadshow really fucked you hard, didn't it? But, uh, you know, speaking of of antiques and just, you know, fun, fun, you know, books and just things that you want to pick up, especially in in Hold On and Cherish Forever, May from Gene Ha and Dark Horse, dude, I got to tell you, such a phenomenal book. And one thing I love the most is just, like I said, we talked about this in the interview, the artwork in this book is something you've never, more likely, never seen before in your life in terms of a comic. The realism that you get when you're reading this book, we were talking about this off the air, I forgot I was reading, not because I'm a moron, but because (laughs) I was just so lost in this book. I just, it didn't seem like I was reading anymore. I just felt like I was there experiencing all this. Oh, yeah, and that's the the thing, is that you get lost in it. And, you know, he was talking about the whole quote about the magic and everything else. And it's true. It's like whenever you read something or watch something, and it just entraps you and then it mesmerizes you to the point where after you're done reading, even though there's a little bit of doubt that what you're about to do can't happen, you're like, hey, I wonder if I open this door, if there'll be another world on the other side. You know, like, for example, if you watch Space Jam, you know how many people, especially kids, probably went to like putt-putt golf and like suck their hand in the hole, hoping that like they'd get dragged down to Warner Brothers land or whatever, you know? Yeah, exactly. Instead, there's just a bunch of slime and worms and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's kind of disgusting. It's you know? pretty so, nasty. Well, well, you also find Tiger Woods' career there as well. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm bumped. <laughs> oh, mic drop. But I think that, uh, no, again, it's just the story is great. And, you know, like you have that nice relationship. Even though it's not really much of one, you have that kind of uh, feeling between May and Abby. And just like, you know, there's a line in the book that really grabbed me where Abby is pretty much telling May, like, you know, I'm your sister. And she's like, Abby, I've never really, you are my sister, but we've never grown up together. You've always been gone. And it's like, you feel a little bit, not animosity, but just like brokenness. And yeah. you know that it's not out of hatred or jealousy, things that you've seen in like with Thor and Loki or in a lot of other relationships. It's broken because it's like they're siblings, but it's like having a sibling that's like 20 years old and being a newborn. You know what I'm saying? There's like an age difference, but right. it's more the matter of 
Abby's been gone for a long time, so there hasn't been that connectivity between her and May. And the book does such a good job at setting that up and explaining it and letting you know where they're at now, where they were at then. It does such a good job of fleshing that relationship out. And guys, if you're looking, you know, everybody has that, that when they go through their poll, they say, what's that? I need, there's just something missing. There's something I need to break up this, everything I've got in my poll. This is the book that you're waiting for. This is the book you're going to get lost in. This is the one that you're going to bag and you're going to board, but you're going to put it in a specific spot on the shelf because you're like, you know what? I'm going to have to go back to this because I have to read this again. And this is not hyperbole. This book really takes you somewhere I don't think comics has in a while. Well, that and also I think that with this book, what it does is with Gene's art, what it really, really does is I think what this is going to do, especially if you're, you know, an up and coming artist or if you're somebody who's, you know, been in the gaming for a while or whatever, for as long as you've been an artist, new, old, whatever, this book is going to challenge you in ways that you've never been challenged mm-hmm. in terms of drawing and ch- maybe looking at art. You might, so you'll see this and you'll probably see art differently and you'll see, hey, here's some techniques from Gene I could probably adopt my own or, you know, whatever, build on or, or whatever. More because like, how the hell did he do that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, you're looking like, how the hell? Did he make this room feel like really three and four dimensional, you know, and, and, and such, you know, and, and makes you feel like you're really there. But I mean, it was just a fun, fun interview, man. It's a fun conversation as well. You know, to see this thing come from a Kickstarter to this beautiful, beautiful series is just a, really a work of art. Absolutely, man. It was, it's just amazing how it all got put together. And I mean, I'll, I know he's thanked them before. I, mean, I, I want to thank the backers for oh, allowing yeah. this to happen and giving us a chance to read this because it's incredible. Exactly. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Don Nerdy Podcast. Again, go pick up May from Dark Horse and Gene Ha on May 18th. Of course, it's going to be available at your local comic shops and digitally. So go be sure to pick that up. Hell, if you can pre-order it, pre-order the do hell it. out of it. Do, do it. it now. Do, do it. it now. Uh, because I'm going to tell you right now, I would not shock me because you know, he's won multiple Eisner Awards. And as he said... He hasn't really, he's been more of a, a group effort for the awards he's won. But I'm not going to lie, man. I think he'll win an Eisner for his yeah, art. Look out. And I mean, think about it. I think that if I'm not mistaken, we have variant covers of the first issue from yeah. Frank Cho and Amanda Connor. So a lot of the, even the creators in the world are going, look out for this book because Gene Ha is back. Exactly. And again, if you want to hit us up on social media, feel free to do so. Facebook.com. Slash Down Nerdy Podcast. And don't forget this Saturday. Yes, we're going to be doing a live show on Free Comic Day at noon from Fancy Escape Comics and Cards on Aragorn Boulevard, Virginia Beach. So here's the thing: if you're in the Virginia Beach area and you want to stop on by and see us and see Bob and all the great cool comics he has and Magic cards and everything, feel free to come on by. But if you're somebody, we've have some fans that tweeted us earlier over the weekend. That said, hey, I'm in England or I'm in Oregon. I can't make it out there. Guess what? Facebook.com slash Down Nerdy. We'll be broadcasting live there. So if you're far and away from Virginia Beach, you won't miss out on the show. And I mean, it's live. We've never done a live show before. Yeah. Anything can happen. You know, you never know who's going to show up, who's going to want to talk. And we'll show you some of the comics that are going to be coming out on Free Comic Book Day. Maybe there's a couple, you know, you want to grab a couple. Maybe maybe there's a couple you didn't consider. We'll leaf through them all. We'll have all the information for you live on Facebook. And we get to show off our brand new snazzy down nerdy t-shirts. Yeah, that's right. We're official now, bitch. 
Get ready for this. <laughs> and you can always find out more about us before that by going to downandnerdypodcast.com. We have an About Us section. We review a couple more comics on the website as well, so you can go there to find out what else we're reading. Also, anything goes on any given week of the show, the week of the show, there's a This Week section. It'll tell you what's going to be in nerd news. What did we do for This Week in Geektainment? What were the comics we reviewed there? The stuff you can actually buy and We'll try and actually get a pre-order link for you for May up there on the website as well, downandnerdypodcast.com. And don't forget, we're also on Twitter as well, at downnerdy757. I'm at Merck with one arm. The one is spelled out in that. James? I'm at James Ace with them. And, I mean, we're on Instagram at downandnerdy757 too, so you can't escape us on social media. We are everywhere. Oh, we're like herpes, but nerdy. I actually think we're better than herpes because, first of all, we don't itch as much. And That's second true. of all, people actually want us. That, 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 that is true. That That is true. <laughs> but like herpes, it's something you can give to, to, to your friends. That's true, but this this is uh, not... But they won't of, hate you for it, though. No, that, that is not the kind of rash that you need. That would be a rash, <laughs> a rash of trouble instead of a rash of good news. Oh, okay, well, with that, I must just leave you with this. Pretty safe comic book reading. Always begging board your comics. And come out and see us on Saturday. And there's a cream for that.